Psalm chapter 13, David writes this beginning in verse one. Pick it up with me. How, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Make note of these words. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Make note of this phrase, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But, but I have trusted in your circle this phrase, steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. One more time, will you pray with me? God, thank you. God, your goodness is running after us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. God, thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. As Paul wrote to Timothy, when we have been faithless, you have been faithful. Now, Father, would you speak to us? These people don't need to hear the thoughts of a middle-aged man. They need to hear from a timeless, eternal God. And so what a grace that I get to be uh, the messenger today. Uh, edit out anything, Lord God, that would distract or draw undue attention to myself. Edit in everything that would maximize and magnify your glory and fame. God, would you encourage someone today? Save someone's soul in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> several years ago, no, not several years ago, recently I, I had, the, um, had the privilege of sitting with, with a group of pastors at a retreat, and I was so excited to get there because, uh, among other things, um, one of the individuals who was going to be pouring into, this, into us this week was, um, was a historian, a theologian, a guy by the name of Jerry Sitzer. He's written one of my favorite books on church history. It's a, very, it's a very unique book on church history. It's church history through the lens of spiritual formation. It's called Water, Water from a Deep Well. I, I highly commend that to you. So here I am. I'm excited. I got my notes. Just looking forward to, to just gleaning and learning some things from him. And then uh, not long into his time with us, he's, he's not giving us um, his story as it relates to what God is doing sovereignly through church history uh, in, our, in our world, but he's giving us his personal story. And I'm hanging on every word, and it becomes evident soon enough that this is the real reason why I needed to be there. Long story short, he takes us back 31 years. It's 1991. Him and his whole family um, are in a car. Jerry is driving. It's uh, the dead of night. Um, and around the corner comes a drunk driver who, who hits them head on. Instantly, Jerry loses his mother, his wife, and his four-year-old daughter. Instantly. Three generations of women just in his family, just like that, gone. He wrote another book that I would commend even more to you. It's called A Grace Disguised. 
In this book, there's a, there's a moving passage. He's giving us his recollections of, of just getting to the hospital. His emotions are raw. Look at what he says with me on the screen. He, he writes, in the hours that followed the accident, the, the initial shot gave way to an unspeakable agony. I, I love this phrase. I felt dizzy with grief's vertigo, cut off from family and friends, tormented by the loss, nauseous from the pain. After arriving at the hospital, I paced the floor like a caged animal only recently captured. I was so, I was so bewildered that I was unable to, to voice questions or think rationally. In a word, Jerry is telling us he's in, he's in crisis. Now, I know we hear that word a lot. It's a very important word for our text, Psalm 13. There's one word that frames our text. It's that word crisis. If you, if, you miss, if you miss the idea of the word crisis, you'll miss what David is saying to us, and you'll miss the point of this little Sunday school lesson I'm going to struggle to give to you. We, we, we use the word crisis so much, it's, um, it's etymological equity seems to be depreciating. It's going, down, it's going down in value. What does crisis mean? Here it is. Look at it with me. If I were to define crisis, I would give it this definition. You know you're in a crisis or a crisis occurs when the events of life leave us with far more questions than we have answers. That's a crisis. You know you are in a crisis when the events of life leave us with far more questions than we have answers. I just want to let you know, you don't have to spend a day in seminary to figure this out. Our passage is one succession of, of questions after another. Four times he says, how long, how long, how long, how long? He, he asks in verse one, will you forget me forever? Uh, end of verse one, will you hide your face from me? Must I take counsel and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long, into verse two, shall my enemy be exalted over me? It's just one question after another question after another question after another question. Psalm 13 raises far more questions than answers. Ever been there? Ever been in a situation in your life where the question to answer ratio is just through the roof? Now, here's what bugs me about this passage. I'm, 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 I'm sitting, in my, sitting in my office, just kind of reading the text, making some observations. I, I'm, I'm, I'm immediately seeing way more questions than answers. David's in crisis. Now what's rising up in me is, well, which crisis is David referring to? I, I, I want to know. If you understand anything about the life of David, it's, I mean, drama doesn't even begin to describe David's life. It's, it's one crisis to another crisis to another crisis. So, so which one is it, David? Are you talking about the time where, uh, where you got Bathsheba pregnant and, and here she is delivering the baby and all's not going well and you're fasting and your heart's just kind of ripped out. You've got way more questions than answers and then the baby dies, more questions than, than answers. Is that the crisis or, 
Or, or David, are you talking about the time you had to catch the first flight out of Jerusalem because your own son, Absalom, just betrayed you, gutted you, and your best friend, the Old Testament Judas, a guy by the name of Ahithophel, a guy that you described in Psalm 15 as, as sharing sweet communion with that guy, stabbed you in the back, and you've got to abdicate. Is it that crisis? Or is it the time when, when, when your homeboy, your buddy, Jonathan, comes to you after attending a feast with his own father and trying to, tr- trying to get the tea on his father's plans for you, and, and, and he's got to tell you, you've you got to leave here, and you're saying goodbye to your best friend. Is it that crisis, or was it one of the many times what some theologians guesstimate to be about 14 to 16 years from the time in which you are anointed king till the time you actually sit on the throne, that middle 14 to 16 years, you're, you're running from Saul. You're feigning madness in Gath. You're hiding out in caves. Is it one of those crises? We don't know. And I think therein lies the beauty in the ambiguity. The fact that we don't know, I just think, I think that's irrelevant. It's not the particular crisis. I think what resonates with human experience is just the very fact that he's gone through one. Furthermore, if you look at some of your Bibles, who's the psalm addressed to? Some of our Bible says it's addressed to the choir master, which means this, Psalm 13, originally, the original intent of Psalm 13 wasn't to be preached. That's a wonderful secondhand application. This is is a song that was meant to be sung by the people of God as they worship God. And any songwriter will tell you what makes a song a hit is its ability to resonate with the human experience. So we can sing this with a degree of 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 what the Greeks call pathos, Because all of us know what it's like to be in seasons of our lives where there's way more questions than answers. I got a former colleague of mine. He, him and his wife went to the, their doctor. She was in the last stages of her pregnancy. They thought it was just a routine checkup. And so they're there. And while they're, the doctor just hits them with a gut punch, runs some tests and lets them know that the baby that's about to be delivered is going to be a special needs child. And this former colleague of mine just, just talks about how that news just hit them like a sledgehammer. They go across the street from the doctor's office. There's a little park right there. They sit on a bench and they just begin to cry and hold each other. And then that turns into verbal processing. And I'll never forget what he said in one of our meetings is he just said, man, I just kind of said out loud, our lives will never be the same. It's a crisis way more questions than answers. Oh, we, we, we've been there. Some of you are college students and you left what you thought was a stable home when you went off to college only to get the news much later that mom and dad are divorcing and you've got way more questions than answers. Maybe some of you right now, you just found out about the infidelity with your spouse and man, that act of betrayal, it's wounded and it's winded you and you're in a crisis, way more questions than you've got answers. Some of you, you've got a kid out in the far country. They're not living like Jesus, way more questions and answers. Others of you, you're trying to, to have kids, and you're in this infertility journey, way more questions than you have 
answers. Keep inhaling and exhaling, friends. I just prayed with a couple after our first service and four years of cancer. Way more questions than he's got answers. Keep living. You'll find yourself in crisis. I have a working theory. This is I talking, not the Lord. I think the older we get, we, we trend in one of two trajectories, salty or sweet. Like when you're 80-something years old, man, either folk are running to you to glean wisdom or they're running from you. Like there's no middle ground, right? And here's my theory. I think the reason for that has everything to do with how we've responded to crisis in our lives. Some of you, crisis happens, you naturally turn inward, you suppress, you withhold, and that thing, man, it just embitters you over time. You think you can manage it, and that thing, and you just become salty and salty and salty and salty. I mean, folk get high blood pressure just being around you. Others of you, when it comes to crisis, you lean into community, you lean into it, you lean into God, you process it well. See, I think, I think if you just read the opening four verses, one of the things David shows us is that crisis it has a way of, of coloring our emotions. So this text is everything in the world with how do I, how do I navigate crisis? And the first thing David shows us is when you're in a crisis, we have to bring our feelings to God. Now, I, I knew I wouldn't get a shout or an amen on that one because at some point in church history, I don't know when it happened, but I think we, we, we kind of made it a badge of spiritual maturity the more emotionless we become. That wasn't how David rolled. <laughs> I mean, verses one through four, if you just read it, it's pretty emotional. Right, if you just read it in its emotional context, we, we get a ton of frustration. David just, he says four times, how long, how long, how long, how long? Don't you hear the frustration? It's sort of like when we were kids on, on road trips, like when are we gonna get there? Which kids don't ask that question these days because they got Siri and all that other stuff. Back then, road trips were a lot different. When are we gonna get, how long? Anybody will tell you the real problem with suffering isn't the actual suffering. It's the psychological fatigue because you don't know how long. So recently I joined the cult of Peloton. I worship several times a week. We, 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 we got the bike in a room in our house where there's a TV. And I remember when we first got it, um, I decided I was going to do interval training. I don't even know what interval training is, man, but I'm just like, let's just do it. Right? I'm just going to be all in. So I get on the bike, and I put the, the, the TV in the room on, um, and I turn the TV up, but I, I, I muted the instructor on the bike. So on the display, for those of you who are a part of the cult with me, you understand that, um, that, that, that you can see how fast you should be going left-hand corner. And a, a, another part of the display shows you the, the resistance. Um, and so interval training involves bursts of speed. But the problem was because I had muted the instructor, I didn't know how long I was supposed to be going. I saw how fast I was supposed to be going. I just didn't know how long. 
and it became unbearable. So I said, let me, let me hear what Sister Girl is actually saying. And so I muted the television, I turned up the Peloton, and then she would say stuff like, for the next 30 seconds, the workout hadn't changed, I just now knew how long I was supposed to be going on. And that just kind of made all the difference in the world because I knew how long. I mean, wouldn't that be kind of cool if God were to come to you and say, hey, Brian, man, let me just, I, I got some, some insider info here. The next six months are going to be really miserable for you. Next 180 days are going to be really miserable. I mean, that would be awesome. Not the miserable part, but at least I know. The problem with suffering is not the suffering. It's not knowing how long. There's more. David says, how long will you hide your face from me? This is what theologians call an anthropomorphism. It's adding human characteristics to God. We understand God is spirit, but the fact that he says, how long will you hide your face? The, the face in the Bible is presence. He says, God, it feels like you have sequestered your presence from me. It just feels like, God, you have abandoned me. Have you ever been there? I mean, have you ever been honest and raw enough in your emotions and feelings with God where you just go, God, where are you? And then he says these words. I had you underline them. Consider and answer me. He's writing in the original language of Hebrew, and the Hebrew words for consider and answer, they're actually what we would call imperatives. When you hear imperatives, think demands. And when you think demands, this has, this has tone implications. David is not saying in some nice King James voice, uh, will thou consider and answer me? It's as if he's grabbing God by the, by the collar and saying, I need some answers and I need them now. Ever been there? You hear the emotion? And I love how he ends in verse three. Well, spoiler alert, light up my eyes. Some theologians actually say this phrase, light up my eyes. If we were to diagnose David today just off of that one phrase, which implies his eyes are dim, we would say he's depressed. No. Not David, not the one who killed Goliath. No, 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 no. He wouldn't get depression. What Spurgeon used to call the melancholy, he wouldn't get that. I hope this is a safe place and you don't judge me for saying this, but th there was a moment in my life when I would hear of people either confiding in me or hear of someone else that they were depressed. I, I hate to say this, my initial reflex reaction would be, oh, that's, they're, they're just weak. And then I remember going through a crisis once. And it was one thing after another, after another, far more questions than I had answers. Now, I'll never forget sitting out on my stoop there in a little home there in California, and I'm just kind of, it's wave after wave after wave of stuff, and it's 11 o'clock in the morning, and I'm feeling fatigued. I'm like, this is weird. Why am I, 
Why am I feel, feeling so, so tired? And the fatigue wouldn't go away. And I'm, after about three days, you know, I'm Googling and I've diagnosed myself with terminal cancer. And <laughs> my wife, who's a, I mean, excuse me, my, my, my sister, who's a medical doctor, says, get off Google. I should go, go to the doctor. And then at night, I'd fall into bed and I'm like, okay, good. I'm, I've just been fatigued. I'm just going to go to sleep. And then all of a sudden, my heart would start racing really fast. And so I, I decided to take my sister up on the advice. I ended up going to the to the doctor, and he's just asking me all these questions about my life and what's going on, and I'm just kind of talking out loud. I got this going on and that going on and that going on, and about after the seventh thing, I'm like, I got a lot going on. You ever had those moments? Diagnosed with depression, anxiety. I resonate deeply, and I've always prided myself of being able to put a whole lot on my shoulders, but I... I resonate deeply with this sentiment. Light up my eyes. So here's David, man. He just, this is his prayer time. This isn't just him just kind of clicking through his prayer journal, just praying for a whole bunch of people and stuff. No, no, he's bringing his emotions to God. Where are you? I don't think it's a stretch to say, I'm frustrated with you. I'm angry with you. This is how I feel. This is not what I signed up for. And I don't like this because I don't know about the home you grew up in, but my generation and especially my community, um, how, could, how do I say this? Godly parents, but mama and daddy didn't provide too much space for you to say, consider and answer me. <laughs> but you, you didn't express feelings to parental authority. Mama said, tie your shoes. It was never, how do you feel about that? Sometimes mama would say something, I'd get really upset. I'd go to my room on the other side of the house. I'd go to the far corner of my room on the other side of the, of, of the house. I would whisper, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her. Then mama's supernatural hearing would kick in way on the other side of the house. What did you say? And I would lie, nothing, mom. <laughs> and there was just kind of this thing. You don't emote to parental authority. That's how I was raised. Now, what happens in my walk with Jesus? I just kind of take that same paradigm, and I have no category for Psalm 13. I want you to look at this, this image on the screen. It's, it's the communication pyramid. Over the course of our time together, I'll probably revisit this several times with you. It's pretty much five levels of communication. It's a helpful grid to, to diagnose the health of your marriage, the health of your relationships, the health of your friendships. And at the top is the most superficial level. And as we progress down deeper, it's, it's the deepest levels of communication. And the most superficial level of communication is cliche. It's good morning, good morning, how are you? You've communicated, but you really haven't really communicated. Levels two and level three, it's kind of sports-centered talk. It's where most guys hang out, facts, and who won the game last night, and um, you know how many points does Steph Curry have, and uh, uh, level three. 
three is a, it's, it's, uh, it's opinion, it's sharing what you think. Of course, Michael Jordan's the greatest of all time. I don't even have uh, LeBron James in my top four. Like, it's, uh, it's Michael Jordan, it's Steph Curry, it's Kobe Bryant, and then maybe it's LeBron. We, we know these things to be true. But levels four and level five are kind of the deepest levels of communication. They allow you to, to, to gauge the health of your marriage, of your friendships. Level four is emotive. It's sharing how I feel. And level five, it's transparency. It's sharing who you are. Level five is very hard to quantify. It's kind of one of those innate senses that you get after you leave lunch or dinner with somebody and you have this thing in you that says, I experienced them. What you're saying is that's level five communication. Here's what drives us nuts about the Psalms. What drives us nuts about the Psalms is we come to them with a level two kind of a mindset that what David is giving us is great theological facts. And and then we read stuff like, uh, consider and answer me, or in Psalm 55, send my enemies to hell. And we're like, whoa, David, like that's not a good theology of, of, of enemies when we need to understand David David is coming at this thing with level four. And you know what God says of David? This is a man after my own, not mind, heart. I, I, I think what God is saying, when David and I talk, he's not just giving me cliches or facts or opinions. He's giving me his feelings and transparency. This is a good grid to even take, to take to God. Some of us were so stuck on facts, as I almost see God saying, hey, Holy Spirit, did you know they needed a, a new tire? Did, did you know they, they've been getting, how do you feel? If I'm going to get through a crisis, I have to bring my feelings to God. But praise God, Psalm 13 doesn't end with verse 4. Now we get to verse 5. David, verse 5, first word, but the idea here is contrast. There's a shift. There's a change, and, and that shift, that change has nothing to do with the circumstances. There's not a hint here that his circumstances have changed, his questions have been answered. It's as if in the process of emoting, of just getting his feelings out, it's almost like now enters in a totally different person. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Here's what we see. If we're going to get through a crisis, yes, we have to. We, 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 we've got to bring our feelings to God, but we get through a crisis, secondly, by remembering the facts about God. David now shifts from feelings to facts, and this is so important because you need to understand your feelings. Your feelings make wonderful passengers horrible drivers. Your feelings are like a two- or three-year-old kid. They need to be in the car seat. They need to be strapped in. They need to be in your car. We don't put them in the trunk. And we for sure don't put them behind the wheel. They, they need to be there. But, but it's, like, it's like David has an epiphany. I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm angry. Consider and answer me. But David teaches us when going through life's crises, always let what you know about God to trump how you might feel about God. And here's what I know. 
I have trusted in your steadfast love. I say this now with no exaggeration. I believe what David is now giving us is the most important word in the Bible. It is a word that the scriptures rest on. It is a word, dare I say, that our faith rests on. It is the Hebrew word has said, translated as steadfast love. It's the most important word. In the Old Testament, it's used 250 times. 127 of those times, it's used in God's iTunes playlist called the Psalms. Over and over and over again. You can't read the Bible without bumping into this word. Has said, your faith rests upon it. So, so what does it mean? Uh, we got a problem. It's almost impossible to define. The word has said has everything to do with the character of God towards his people. How do you describe that? Trying to describe his said is, is the feeling I had when I got back from Cape Town, South Africa, and my, 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 my wife was asking me about the trip, and, and she's wanting me to describe Cape Town, South Africa to her, one of the most beautiful places on the, on the, on the planet. It's Tabletop Mountain. It's uh, Atlantic meets the Indian Ocean. It's just incredible. How, words failed me. Like, how do you put that into language? It's a said. It's like trying to describe what my feelings when I, when I first heard John Coltrane's album, A Love Supreme, the first album he records after his spiritual awakening. It's what he calls his offering to God. It's, if you've never heard it, I'm here for you. You, 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 you should hear that. It's, it's phenomenal. I believe when Jesus and the Holy Spirit come back to take us back home, they're going to stop by Tower Records. Okay, Brian, you're in 2022. They, 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 they're going to take that thing back with them. Trying to describe his set is trying to articulate our pastor's love relationship with Nicolas Cage. How do you articulate that? <laughs> Let me shoot my best shot, and this isn't from me. This is from, this is from Michael Card, his wonderful book, Inexpressible, has said in the mystery of God's loving kindness as we round third and head for home. What is has said? Here it is. It's the best shot I've seen when the person whom I have the right to expect nothing from gives me everything. That's the said. When the person whom I have the right to expect nothing from gives me everything. Uh, let me just take you to a couple places in the Bible. Has said is in Exodus chapter 34. God calls Moses in for a closed door meeting. Uh, uh, Moses, I'm frustrated with my people. Here I am. I've, I've opened up the Red Sea. I've set them free from the Egyptians. I'm giving them manna every day. I'm leading them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And what do these jokers do? They, 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 they they, they end up worshiping a golden calf. I'm, I'm done, Moses. Here's what I'm going to do. We're going to do a hard reset. We're going to wipe everybody out. It's just going to be you. Moses, who plays the type of Christ, intercedes on behalf of the people. They, they have no right to expect anything from God. And what does God do? God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to give them everything. I'm going to show you my glory. Look at what it says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed. 
and faithfulness keeping, here it is again twice, said for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, they have no right to expect anything, but I'm going to give them everything. said is Hosea. God says to Hosea, my people are driving me nuts. They are, his language, whoring after other gods. I have every right to divorce them, but I want to show them that I've got way more mercy than they've got mess. So uh, Hosea, I'm going to use you as my divine show and tell. Mary Gomer, a prostitute, chapter one, when she cheats on you, chapter three, I need you to do to her what I do to my people every single day. Go get her. She has no right to expect anything from you, but give her everything because that's what I do with my people. No, I can go. I could go prodigal son, prodigal son, Give me my share of the inheritance now. Cultural equivalent of I wish you were dead. He wasted on riotous living. He comes back. He has no right to expect anything. The dad says, are you kidding me? Give him a ring. Kill the fatty calf. Put a robe on him. Get the DJ. Let's Cupid shuffle all night. I'm giving him everything. And friends, that's the cross. Just this week, we've, we've all worshipped our own gods of success and status and power and money and children and so on. We have no right to expect anything from God, but morning by morning, new mercies we see as far as the east is from the west, is as far as he has removed our iniquities from us. You are here today because of Hesed. So what do we do with that? When we're going through a crisis, David says, I've trusted in your steadfast love. And here's what I think David is thinking. God, I shouldn't even be here. My own father didn't even think I was worthy enough to make me in a contestant, to present me as an option, but you chose me. David says, I'm here, my situation hasn't changed, but I've made the decision, God, your said will become the center of my attention and not my situation or circumstances. So I want to remember your facts about who you are. Thirdly and finally, David says when going through a crisis that we get through a crisis by bringing our faith to God. Brian, what does that mean as we close? Verse five, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. What does that look like? My heart, here it is, shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. The situation hadn't changed. Here's what he's saying. Situation hadn't changed. I'm still in the crisis, but I've made up my mind. I will rejoice. I will sing. Rejoicing and singing are acts of defiant and rebellion to Satan and my circumstances. When we rejoice and sing, even in the crisis, we are saying, Satan and circumstances, you will not have the final say over my life. So what are you saying here, Brian, as we close? I, I just, I gotta will myself to rejoice. I have to will myself to sing. No, 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 no. These things 
are responses to God's said. Let me explain it this way. In physics, there's something called sympathetic resonation. Sympathetic resonation pretty much says when, when two things are in tune, the one that's in tune to the other responds. You musicians understand this. A musician once told me, if you take a C tuning fork and you hold it next to a guitar where one of the strings has already been tuned to C, just the presence of the C tuning fork will cause that string to vibrate. Now, I grew up in a little old country church. I ain't never heard sympathetic resonation in my life. But every week we talked about the concept. We used to sing, when I think of the goodness of Jesus and all that he's done for me, my soul cries out, hallelujah. Thank God for blessing me. In other words, when the sea-tuning fork of God's has said is in my presence, and my, my heart has been tuned to that, my vocal cords vibrate. The response, not the manufactured, white-knuckling, I've got to do. The response is singing and rejoicing. That's why I never get when Christians say, the worship was bad today. How can worship be bad if, 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 if my heart has been marinating on his said? When all throughout the week I've been soaking in your goodness and your kindness. My worship is not based on the quality of the musicianship. It is based on the faithfulness of God. And so I sing. And I rejoice. Even when I'm still in crisis. Because God's has said has covered me. I, I, I want to show you this image. You're looking at the Time Life photo of the year for 1996. It is a profound image of has said. When a person has no right to expect anything, but they get everything. The black woman is a woman by the name of Keisha Thomas. The guy on the ground is a, um, a member of the KKK. It was a rally for the KKK, and he wandered into where the protesters were. Many of them were African-Americans. The African-Americans were about to jump on this guy. He had no right to expect anything. Out of the blue comes the most unlikely person, Keisha Thomas. She covers him. I remember first seeing this image and just going, has she lost her mind? Do you not understand the thoughts, the attitudes, the actions of this individual? And the more I began to soak on this image, the more I realized I'm not Keisha. We're all this individual on the ground. It's all of us. We're rebels. Every day we offend God. Every day we push against God. We have no right to expect anything from him. 
And Jesus Christ, the very one we violated, is the true and better Keisha Thomas who, who covers us. Now, let me just ask you, let me just ask you, just kind of work your imagination. When, when, when the mob dissipates, when the crowds go away, I bet you this young man was changed. I bet you he left with a different perspective. Because when you've experienced said on any level, it changes you. Some of you are here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. That's a picture of what Christ has done for you on the cross. And today, Jesus is saying, yes, you have violated me. Yes, you have sinned against me. Yes, you have rebelled against me. You have wounded me. But by my stripes, you're healed. My blood is for you. Will you say yes to me? Others of you, you're followers of Jesus Christ, but you're struggling for joy. Your circumstances are lording over your life, and I don't want to make light of them. But I'm telling you, in Christ, we're kind of playing with house money. All that he's done for us on the cross. He's good. He's good. So how do we respond to that? We... We respond by singing. We respond by rejoicing. Even though our situation may not have changed, even though our circumstances may not have changed, we, we let our vocal cords vibrate to in Christ alone, and we lift it up as an act of defiance today to the enemy. And we declare, you will not get the victory over me. We are rejoicing, not in my performance, but in his has said which has no expiration day. It keeps covering us and covering us and covering us. So Father, we thank you. Thank you for the beauty of the life of David for Psalm 13. Thank you, Lord God. I know this is easier said than done. I know it's easier said than done. Lord, this is a right now word for somebody. Help us to rest and marinate in your said. May your goodness, may your faithfulness, may what Christ has done for us, Christ alone, not Christ plus, be so overwhelming to us that it just towers over the cancer diagnosis. It towers over the betrayal. It towers over the wayward child. It towers over whatever we may be facing. We respond to you today in Jesus' name, amen.